Welcome. Glad that you're here this morning. Uh, one thing you need to know about us is if you come two weeks in a row, you'll probably hear two different teachers. Uh, we have two teaching pastors, myself and Lloyd Shadrach, and we believe in plurality of leadership. Part of that is a plurality of teaching. We share that responsibility, Lloyd and I do together. We've got uh, some others that teach as well on occasion. But uh, one of our core values at Fellowship is better together. And we lean into that through our fellowship groups, which is our small group structure. We lean into that in our leadership, our elder board, and we lean into that in our teaching. As I was coming up here to speak to you, I, I heard those final words that Susan said after she read the scripture text. This is the living word of God for us today. And that's our weekly tradition. When we read God's word, that's what we say. And I was remembering, I really believe that. In other words, it's not just God's word for the people that he spoke to thousands of years ago. God's word is alive. And so it's his word for us today. And so you've come in here at a particular moment in time in your life and you're gonna hear God's word proclaimed, read, taught, explained, and applied. And I hope that you'll be able to understand that it's God speaking to you through his word today and what he has to say you need to hear today, just as I do. That's why we're here this morning. Um, 2014 was when my wife Jody and myself moved here to Franklin. Um, we were living in East Tennessee before that, Texas before that, Atlanta. So we were ready to settle down. And by God's grace, we've been able to settle down here and we love it. And I was thinking back on the ages of our kids when we moved in and our oldest uh, at that time uh, was 10. And then we have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old when we moved. And they're all eight years older than that now. And I remember those days longingly in some ways because they're all sweet. And they're three girls, by the way. You know, there's nothing more sweet than like a seven-year-old girl. I mean, seriously, come on. And then, you know, things happen. You know, they get to be older and they're still sweet, but they're not. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> but I had this memory as I was thinking about our move here. And we moved into this house that we still live in and it has a bonus room. We never had a bonus room before. It's up over the garage. And so we thought, what can we do with this bonus room? I had always wanted to have a movie room. So I went to Amazon, I bought a projector, installed it in the ceiling, got a screen that drops down, you know, projects. It's like a hundred inch. It's beautiful. I love it. And I remember one of the first times the girls ever watched a movie in that room. And I have this vivid image in my head of the three of them like snuggled up on the couch and they've got more blankets and pillows than they know what to do with. Their feet are propped up. They've got, I don't know what the movie was. It was probably one of the Disney princess movies at that time. And Jody and I went downstairs to the kitchen and we were just, we were loving seeing them have such a fun time. And we made this big bowl of popcorn. And when my wife makes popcorn, she likes to put treats in the popcorn. So she got out the M&Ms and she got the Sour Patch Kids and she got the Skittles and she's just like loading down this popcorn. And I'm just like, what are you doing to these girls? But, but I got into it too. And I said, all right, what else can we do? We put a little caramel on top of the popcorn. And we brought this big bowl of crazy, you know, stuff up to the girls and their eyes got as wide as saucers when they saw what was in that bowl. And here they are, you know, surrounded by blankets and pillows and mom and dad serving them delicious treats. And we've got a big screen and they're watching a Disney movie. And my oldest just, just spontaneously says, this is the life. <laughs> and then her little sister looked over and she's like, 
this, the life, yeah. And then the younger sister was like, this is the life. You know, they were all like, this is the life. I don't even know if they understood what that means. But there was something in them at that moment that thought, here we are, we have everything we could possibly want. We've got entertainment, we've got comfort, we've got parents that care for us, we've got sisters, we've got community. This is the life. And they didn't understand it yet, but they were expressing something that's embedded deeply in all of us. This desire for everything to be well. This longing for, for the, the little moments in time where it's just like all is well, all is right, and we can say this is the life. This is joy, this is peace, this is exhilaration, fullness, this is meaning. And that, that longing to feel that and know that never really leaves us. And we start little and a bowl of popcorn and candy can do that for us. And we get older and that won't do that for us anymore. And now it's friendships or it's the boyfriend or it's the girlfriend. And we get older and it's a family. I finally have a family and I'm married, a child. And you grow up in a career. And then you experience all these different stages of life. And you're like, oh, this is the life. And then it goes away. This is the life. It goes away. And we find ourselves churning, longing to get that feeling back. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to have a conversation with a group of people who are just like us in this way. They're trying to find life. They're, they're falling in love. They're making a living. They're getting sick and getting healed. They're having kids. They're worrying about their future. And Jesus is going to give them an invitation to the life But there's a catch. In order to experience that life that they're longing for, they have to be willing to see the world, themselves, and God differently than they did before. And this is our invitation this morning as well. Open your Bibles, if you have not already, to John chapter 6. We mentioned this is a long chapter in John's gospel and this morning I'm going to cover a lot of verses of it and we still have after today two more messages in this same chapter and we told you in the first week that this chapter really centers on bread it's the metaphor that you're going to keep finding over and over and through this chapter so week one Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish and feeds 5,000 people and they can't believe it in fact they're just like this is the prophet this is the Messiah he has arrived and then that evening as Lloyd taught last week, Jesus sends his disciples on a boat right into a storm. Why is Jesus sending them into a storm? Well, the great message last week. If you missed that, I encourage you to listen to it or go watch it online. And he comes and he meets them in the middle of the lake as they're struggling. And he walks on the water to get there. And of course, they're afraid of him until they see he's been there. He's been watching them. He's been seeing them. He gets in the boat and they're suddenly arriving where they are. Well, this morning's text is going to pick up right where yesterday, or last week's text uh, left off. And, and we'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. I'm going to begin in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 6. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
Okay, so that's the context. These people are desperate to see Jesus, that he just multiplied the bread, then he disappeared. And they're like, where did he go? And then they discover he's across. How did he get there? They've got all these questions for Jesus. And all of this is going to set up what Jesus is going to tell them, this amazing offer of life that he's going to give them. Now, there are three things that Jesus is going to say, and this is sort of the outline of what we'll see in the text. I want to share it with you now, and then I'll track it as we we go through the the passage. Number one, he's going to tell them the reason that they're always searching for life but never really finding it. The reason they're always searching but never actually finding life that is true life. Number two, the place where they will actually find it. And number three, the way to take hold of that life now that they have found it. And so these three things apply to us as well. Let's start with the first one. The reason we're always searching for life but never really finding it. Notice that these people are seeking Jesus. The very last two words of verse 24, they're seeking Jesus. That's a good start. That's a great start. If you're looking for life, these people are seeking Jesus. However, however, there's more going on in their hearts than we yet know. And Jesus is going to call attention to it. Look what happens in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, Jesus isn't really going to answer that question. He's going to go straight to the heart of their problem. Here, here he goes. Truly, truly, I say to you, that just means listen to what I have to say. It's truth and it matters. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So remember the first thing Jesus is going to say is, I want to tell you the reason why you've been searching and searching for life and you can't ever seem to hold on to it. You can't ever seem to grasp it. And the reason is you're looking in the wrong places. Notice what he says here. He he says, Do not work, verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now I want to mark up the contrast. That word, but in the middle, is drawing our eyes to the contrast. Something you're not to work for, which is food that perishes. Something you are to work for, food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is saying, if you're looking for life, in something temporary, something that will fade, something that will go away, something that will spoil, you're never going to really find it. Now, the assumption underneath is that there is a food that doesn't spoil, that's not temporary, that's not perishable, and this is the other kind of food, the food that endures to eternal life. Now, people get excited when we start talking about eternal life, as you should, but But I want to unpack the phrase eternal life in a way that may be a little bit different than what you typically think of when you think of eternal life. When when most people hear eternal life, particularly in a spiritual context or like at a church, you know, and teaching the Bible and talks about eternal life, they're thinking, oh, that's that's heaven. In other words, eternal life is the, the life that will start when I die and through faith in Jesus, I will have eternal life and I'll live with Jesus in heaven forever. And that's right, that's true, but that's only a part of the truth about eternal life. What Jesus actually teaches about eternal life is it's not just a duration, it's a quality of life. And you don't have to wait for it to start when you die. In other words, let me, let me put it to you this way. 
I think when we think of eternal life, we usually just mean eternal existence. As my daughters learned on that one night when they were watching the movie, there's a difference between existing and living. I think when they said, this is the life, what they were really feeling was like, I didn't know it could be this good. It's like, you know, before I was just existing, but now I'm living. This is the life. That's the quality that eternal life has to it. It's not just you're going to exist forever. It's fullness, joy, meaning, exhilaration. It, it, it's, it's all of what you've tasted little bitty glimpses of that cause you to say, this is the life, this is the life. Then it fades away, it fades away. Imagine that never fading away. And again, it starts now, Jesus says. And of course, it continues forever without end because eternal life is actually the life of God, the God who is eternal, a God who does not perish or spoil. So when you taste the life that God really has for you, which is the life of God himself, you'll experience it and it will never end. It is eternal life. So the life Jesus is talking about here, and this is so important for you to grab onto this now because when we get to the bread of life part later, it's gonna all make sense. The life Jesus is talking about is not just eternal existence, but eternal life. Eternal life is life that is true life. Most people only ever catch a shadow of that kind of life. Most only ever get a whiff of the aroma and, and, and they experience it through those moments in life where they say, wow, this is the life. You meet your true love. Oh, this is the life. You have a child. Oh, this is the life. You have a grandchild. You get the job. You experience success in your career. Like you get to buy the lake house. Whatever it is, they're just shadows they're glimmers of the real, the true, the eternal life. Most people only experience these things in tiny little glimpses throughout their life. Jesus is saying eternal life is the life and it never ends. Now I've got to imagine these people are thinking, I don't really know what this man is talking about. And it's going to get worse <laughs> in a sense. Because he's purposely trying to move them into a thinking differently about life itself and, and who has life for them and what that means. So let, let's, let's see what happens next. Um, verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him he sent. Guys, this is just like us. Jesus is trying to transform the way we think about life itself. And, and all we do is just by, well, what works do I have to do? We, we obsess over works. Jesus, give me the list of the nine things I need to do and the 18 things I need to stop doing. And I will discipline myself to live the works. I'll do the works. And, and we, we constantly have to fight this tendency that we have to, to fixate on works. Why do we always make it about works? This is the thought that came to my mind this week. And there's probably lots of answers to that question, but why do we make it about works? For me, I think it's because I can control works and I can understand works. Works don't actually require a lot of faith. 
So what Jesus actually is trying to do here, he's trying to take them out of the realm of what they can control and to some degree, a little bit out of the realm of what they even understand and into the realm of faith, into the realm of belief. He's trying to get them to, to, to step, step over a ledge into something that they can only trust. Now watch what happens next. This is fascinating. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you see what's going on here? They're like, we don't want to step out into faith. Show us. <laughs> Convince us. Make us believe. We want proof, not faith. The irony is just the day before. Jesus gave them manna, in essence. And that, that's what they realized at the time. It's like, wow, this is, this is just like the manna coming from heaven. They got the bread, they got the fish, they ate, they were full. The problem is they understood the story in the Old Testament. The manna came every day. I think what they're saying to Jesus is like, if, if you're the greater Moses, feed us again today. In some ways, again, this is so typical of you and me, isn't it? Like we can all think of something God's done in our lives in the past or just like, man, that, there's no question that was God. But where's my miracle today? Make me believe, show me proof. And, and, and Jesus is gonna have none of it because he's thinking, didn't you hear what I said? You need more than just Satisfaction in the moment. In other words, you and I, this is our tendency. We don't want to have to believe in something. Instead, we just want to be satisfied right now. Faith is always like forward out there. Like faith is stepping out over this ledge and I don't know what's going to happen. You see, we don't like doing that. I just want to be satisfied in this moment. And if I were Jesus, I think I would have gotten frustrated with him, but he doesn't. So instead, he uses this as his opening to move toward his second point. Remember his first point was this, the reason you can't ever be satisfied in life is because you're trying to go to temporary things, perishable things to be satisfied. That's point number one. Point number two, he's going to say, let me show you the place where you actually can find real life. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, there's that phrase again, pay attention. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. First thing Jesus does is he reminds them the bread didn't come from Moses. And Moses was important. God used Moses, but Moses was never the source. God is always the source of life. So don't go look into a person. Don't go look into a philosophy of someone to follow other than God himself, who is standing right before this crowd, even though they don't yet realize that. Second, he redirects their gaze from the past to the present. He's saying, stop fixating on what God did back then 
and open your eyes to the real bread that's being offered to you in the moment. And as he's saying that, the people are staring at God and they don't even know it. So Jesus, he starts bringing their attention to who he actually is and, and, and he's trying to open their eyes to who he actually is. And the, the first thing he says is the, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And at this point, we know he's talking about himself, but they're probably like, well, who is that? So he's going to get more explicit. He's essentially saying right now, you think what God did through Moses was spectacular. I want you to know who it is that is speaking to you. And so the people are interested. We know they're interested because of verse 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And that was what Jesus needed to go all the way. And he goes all the way. Listen to what he says. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And just like that, we have one of the most important and audacious claims in the history of the world. Now, if you grew up going to church, you've probably heard this multiple times. Jesus is the bread of life. You know, maybe you've seen it on a plaque or in a picture somewhere. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, a, in some ways we talk about that every week when we do communion, et cetera. So it's sort of just become a, a religious phrase to you, perhaps. I, I want to slow you down this morning and I want to invite you to really consider what Jesus is saying when he makes that claim. The first thing he's obviously saying is, I am. And, you know, in English, that doesn't necessarily mean that much to us, but to every Hebrew listening to him, they would have recognized, oh my goodness, that, now Jesus would have been speaking in Greek or possibly Aramaic, but they knew that's a translation of the Hebrew I am, which is Yahweh, the proper name of God, which they didn't even speak. So that's why people go nuts every time Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, they realize he's claiming to be God. There are seven I am statements in John's gospel. This is the first one. Let me give you a preview of the others. I'm the bread of life, that's today. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Each one of these statements, Jesus is proclaiming his deity as the sovereign creator of the universe walking on earth, as hard as that is to believe. That's what he's proclaiming. But he's also saying, and, and here's what that means for you. And each one of these has a different nuance to it, doesn't it? So this morning, it's I'm God, I am walking on earth, the, the, the God of the universe walking on earth. And what that means to you is I'm your bread. I am your bread. Let's go back to our verse. What does it mean for Jesus to be your bread? It means he's the only place where you can actually find the life you long to live. Come on, Rob. 
I don't know that that's true. Do you feel the weight of the audacious claim he is making? How do you know that's what Jesus meant? The metaphor. In that culture, bread was not a side dish. Bread was synonymous with food. Food is necessary for life. So they would ask God, like, God, would you give us bread today? Would you give us bread today? Give us our daily bread. And Jesus is saying, I'm it. I'm the meal. I want to help you draw out the logical conclusion. If you believe Jesus is the bread of life, if you really believe it, it means everything else you've ever chased after, tasted, enjoyed, thinking this is the life, is just a shadow, a fleeting substitute for the real. Do you believe that? Don't answer too quickly. If you're wrestling, uh, that's a good sign. I, I want to give you permission just to be like, okay, I, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, but it's hard to believe he's my everything. It's hard to believe that there is no real life. What does that even mean anyway to think about him that way? Keep wrestling. There's one more important point Jesus is going to make. So, you know, part one of his sermon here was why you're not finding life, really. Part two is where you will find it, which is in me. Part three, how do you take a hold of it once you've found it? This is the one we really need to hear. How, how, do you, how do you take hold of Jesus in this kind of way? Like the bread of life, Jesus, how can he become bread to you? The answer is right here in the second half of verse 35. Take a look. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, maybe you're feeling a little disappointed right now because you're like, oh, I was hoping for some big reveal or some secret. Maybe there's a part of you that's like, tell me the works I need to do to have Jesus as my bread. Jesus is always going to move you toward faith. Now, I love this invitation because it's so inclusive. It's so broad. It's so open-handed. Whoever, whoever, do you want to eat true life? You're invited. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your past is. I don't care what you've been into and up to recently. I don't care how much, I don't care. You are invited. Do you want to eat true life? Whoever comes, whoever believes. Now here's the tension that I, I want to name as I've wrestled in my own heart. Just because it's so gracious and open-handed doesn't mean it's easy. Well, what do you mean, Rob? I, I, I thought gospels, you know, all you have to do is believe, all you have to do is believe. It's not easy to believe Jesus is your life. 
It's not easy for us. It wasn't easy for these people. These people saw him feed 5,000 and yet they didn't really believe in him. You're like, well, what do you mean they didn't believe in him? It said they proclaimed him as the prophet. They understood who he was and that, that is Jesus's identity, the prophet, the Messiah. But they didn't believe he was the bread of life. We know this because by the end of the chapter, they're all gonna leave him. So Jesus is gonna talk about this very thing. Look at the next verse. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus is saying, as I've already told you, you've seen me, you've experienced me, you even saw me do a miracle, but you don't believe. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? We believe in you. We just, we, we said you are who you say you are. The context is I've just said I am the bread of life and you don't believe that yet. Have you ever thought if I could just see Jesus, if I could have lived back then, if I could have seen one of those miracles, it'd be easier to believe in him. Maybe not. Jesus is always pushing us toward faith. So what is it for us and them about coming to Jesus as the bread of life, believing in Jesus as the bread of life? That's hard. I want to I wrestle with this with you before we end. I think for many of us, we would say Jesus is the bread of life theologically, but if we're honest, we'd say something else is my bread personally. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's like, yes, we all acknowledge Jesus is the bread of life of the world. He's God. He created everything. He died, died for the world's sins and all that kind of stuff. And I put my faith in him in that sense. But I've got other things that I'm leaning on for life. I've got career. I've got kids. I've got my money. I've got my dreams. I've got my grandkids, you see. In essence, what you're really saying in that moment is you're saying, Jesus isn't my bread. Jesus is the butter on top of my bread. Because my bread is all this other stuff. I and mean, when my relationship with my marriage is right or when my kids are okay, or when things are going right, I'm eating and I'm satisfied. And I need Jesus just kind of slathered on top of that bread to make it all come together. I need Jesus' blessing over my bread. So if we're honest, I think a lot of times we'd say, Jesus, Jesus isn't my bread. He's, he's the butter on top. Sometimes what's true of me, if I'm honest, Jesus isn't my bread. Jesus is my vegetables. He's on my plate, but he's not the main dish. And if I'm honest, I don't really want to eat the vegetables. At times in my life, I realize, oh, I'm pretty unhealthy. I need to eat more vegetables. I need more of Jesus. I better start moving toward him. Get healthy again. Do you see the metaphor is stretching you? It's stretching me because Jesus is saying, I, I am everything. I'm meant to be your whole. I'm meant to be your meal. I'm meant to be what you feast on. And I don't know about you, but I am just learning what that means. 47. I've believed in Jesus since I was four. And by the way, I believed I was legitimately saved since I was four. This isn't a question of salvation. We'll get to that at the end of the text. 
I'm talking about learning to lean in to Jesus for vitality and energy and rest when all the rest of life might be swirling out of control. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying if you have anxiety about life, part of what Jesus would call you to do is say, I want you to come to me as your bread. I want you to believe in me as your bread. If, if you've got areas of your life that you just know aren't right, and you really think about it, it's just like, I, I think I'm, I'm straying in that area because I think there's life for me over here. It's apart from God. I kind of know that, but it feels good. Jesus would say, come to me as your bread. Believe in me as your bread. That's so simple, but not always easy. I remember our kids were growing up and I realized something that they got way more excited about Christmas than they ever did about Easter when they were little. And of course they do, you know, who, who, who doesn't? You got all the presents and all that kind of stuff. But I was thinking about that biblically one time or theologically or whatever. And I thought, uh, you know, Easter is actually the more significant spiritual holiday than Christmas. I mean, Christmas is wonderful, but come on. Easter, the resurrection. And so Jody and I said, what can we do to, to, to add meaning to the Easter celebration for our family? So we came up with four or five things that we do and it's, it's really been rich for us as a family. One of the things we do is we as a family do a fast on Saturday of Easter weekend. And here's how this works for us. We, we eat a meal on Friday after we come back from Good Friday service. And that's our last meal. We do about a 24-hour fast. We break the fast at supper on Saturday. Originally, it was gonna be wait until Easter morning. But then I was like, I gotta preach on Easter morning. I can't be that hungry. <laughs> so we break the fast on Saturday. And so we started thinking about what would it look like? When our girls were little, we didn't do like a complete no food. You know, they got to still have like smoothie or whatever. But now that they're older, we all fast together as a family. And it's the one day a year that at least I know for my daughters that they deny themselves of food. And it is so funny to see how hard that is for them. It's like they're wanting to sneak the, the fruit snacks from the, the pantry. And, you know, we got their eye on you. You can't, no, no, got to be holding on. They're just like, but I'm so hungry. They're wanting to break that fast early. Now, what also is going on is my wife is baking bread every year on this day because we have a special bread that we eat when we break our fast on Saturday night. We call it resurrection bread. And it's the only time in the year that my wife bakes bread from scratch because it has to rise, right? It has to rise up. It's resurrection bread. So Jody is working on this bread most of the day and we can smell it and we can see it. It's like the cinnamon, raisin, wonderful, beautiful loaf of bread. And so that just makes us more and more hungry. And what we have to tell our daughters as they wait and ourselves, wait for the bread. Wait for the bread. And if you cheat it at three in the afternoon, the bread at six is not nearly as good. If you wait for the bread, the bread satisfies. In fact, it more than satisfies. The bread delights. 
and we eat that bread and we break our fast and we say, this is the good life. I want to invite you into our application this morning, which is the Lord's Supper. Pull out your communion elements that you picked up when you came in. And I'm going to put a question on the screen as you're preparing the elements. Do you believe Jesus is the bread of life? Simple question, really. It's straightforward. It comes straight from our texts this morning. But this is the question we all need. For some of you this morning, you actually have never believed Jesus is the bread of life in, in any way, shape, or form. And I want to invite you to faith this morning. Maybe you've been one of those people that's like, well, when, when God proves himself to me, I'll believe. He wants to invite you into faith. He's spoken to you this morning through his word. He said, I am the bread of life. Are you willing to come? Are you willing to believe? Maybe this morning you're coming and you're believing for the very first time. I want to encourage you to join us with this. It'll be your first real communion as a believer in Jesus Christ. There are many others of us who have put our faith in Jesus maybe long ago, maybe years ago, like me. And yet you're willing to say, I'm just now learning what it might mean to believe Jesus is the bread of life for me. I want to encourage you to lean into that this morning as you take communion. I I want you to fully understand and grasp all that it represents. And so take out the bread and hold it in your hand and just look at the bread for just a minute. This bread ties us all the way back to the supper that Jesus had with his disciples the very last time he ate with them. It was Passover supper. He took the bread. He broke it and said, this is my body. Now, why did he break it? Because he's going to share it. But he also broke it because bread has to be broken for it to feed you. The way that our digestive system works is something has to come into us and be broken down to give us life. God was willing to be broken so we could have life, so we could feast on him. And if you believe Jesus is the bread, let's celebrate and thank him for that and let's eat the bread together. Let's also peel back the foil layer to get to the juice that's inside the cup. In the same way that he had blessed the bread and broken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. And you notice when he announced himself as the bread of life, he says, anyone who comes to me will never go hungry and anyone who believes me will never thirst. You and I are thirsty people thirsty for life. Jesus says, there is a type of life in my blood that I want you to know. Peace, forgiveness, assurance that you're cleansed. And that can be yours this morning through faith. Let's thank God for his cup and let's drink.
if you've put your faith in Jesus as the bread of life, maybe this morning or at any point, you can be assured that he has received you. You can be assured that you belong to him. And so I want to read to you the last four verses of our text this morning with no comment. Just hear these words of Jesus as an assurance of your salvation. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and celebrate and sing together.